Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to episode three of This Is Our Effing Podcast, a Red Sox show with your co-hosts, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. And we would invite you to rate the podcast, tell your friends about it, whether you edit on Spotify or Apple or wherever you access your podcasts, let friends know about it, spread the word to Red Sox fans and join us for um, what we think will be a good time listening to this podcast and discussing the 2021 Boston Red Sox. And those 2021 Boston Red Sox, Steve, are out on the road for a six-game road trip, first to Dunedin, Florida, where they will play the relocated Toronto Blue Jays and then back up for an interleague series in Philadelphia. But I wanted to start today by talking about some of the struggles the Red Sox have had at Fenway Park, of all places, despite their presence uh, in first place in the American League East and tying for the best record in the American League so far. They are a game over 500 at home, 13 and 12, having just finished up a three and three homestand at home. Any ideas on why they're struggling at Fenway? You know, it's kind of been a recent trend with the Red Sox over the last couple of seasons. Uh, 2019 was not good at home. 2020 uh, was not good anywhere. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's not outlandish to say that if you don't play well at home, you're not going to be a championship team. It, you know, baseball just doesn't work that way. And Fenway was one of the best home field advantages of any team in any sport for the longest time. And I think that really comes down to the way that the park plays and the advantages that the home team can kind of learn the quirks of the ballpark better than the visiting team when they come in for a three or four game set. Um, but they're certainly not taking advantage of that. And one of the reasons may be because of all the new faces and there's a lot of guys on that team this season that haven't been on the team before and maybe really haven't made Fenway their own yet. Yeah, it stands to reason there would be a little bit of an adjustment period for uh, guys like Gonzalez and Hernandez and Renfro, all of whom are new to the ball club this year. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is, Steve, I'm sure you can recall back in your time, it wasn't that long ago that, Red Sox teams were built for Fenway to their detriment in other ballparks. You know, they would stack that lineup with right-handed power pull hitters who could uh, knock down the wall and hit balls over the green monster. But then you'd go to a more uh, symmetrical ballpark in, or play on turf someplace in Toronto or Kansas City, and the Red Sox were like a fish out of water. Now they're actually well-rounded enough to win on the road can't seem to take advantage of their own home ballpark. Yeah. And I think they will over time and they have to, there's no question. I mean, if this is going to be, you know, if they're a first place team right now, we're more than a quarter of the way into the season. If they want to be a first place team at the end of the year, uh, which is, you know, still certainly remains to be seen. You're going to have to play better at home. They've played better on the road. Uh, they're going to have six games on the road here and that'll, that'll determine uh, a little bit more about how well they play on the road, especially against a, a hot Toronto team. Um, this, you know, it, it, that trend cannot continue on if they want to stay at the top of the division. And when you think about it, 
they've played some pretty darn good baseball and they're still only what two and a half games ahead of the fourth place team in the division, which is the Yankees. And so there's, if, if you think like I do that the other three teams that are chasing the Red Sox, their better days are still ahead of them. Yeah. I, I mean, it certainly doesn't get any easier and there is a lot of parity, I think within the game, but particularly as you noted within the division where you've got all those teams except Baltimore uh, you know, separated by only two or three games. And I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it kind of stayed that way right into September. I, I wonder, too, if the announcement yesterday here in Massachusetts that um, Fenway will be allowed to go to full capacity beginning May 29th, which will be in the middle or actually toward the end of this next homestand that uh, starts up after the current road trip. You wonder if just having more bodies, the energy, the fan support, uh, you know, getting behind the home team, if you will, if that doesn't play somewhat of a factor and maybe improve things for the Red Sox at home going forward. I think it absolutely will. I mean, the, the Fenway crowd always was sort of like the 10th player, you know, uh, uh, you know, a rabid fan base that loves the game, that wants the Red Sox to win and can make it awfully difficult on visiting teams when they come into Fenway. Um, I, I, I just don't, I don't think it, it could hurt at all. I mean, these guys for two years now or two seasons have been used to playing in front of nobody. So, you know, who cares where you're playing? There's no real advantage to being on the road or at home and you know, for a period of time, they were playing kind of in a bubble. No one was traveling very far anyway. So it was just such unusual circumstances to have a, a Fenway crowd, uh, you know, 37,000 strong on their feet, uh, you know, maybe for a, ball, a Bobby Dahlbeck home run. <laughs> that, you know, 9,000 people stood up and gave him a curtain call, but it's not the same. You know, they, they said it was awesome but it's only because they haven't seen it for so long. Imagine when that, when there's a packed house doing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, you referenced that doll back home run last Friday night against the angels, giving them a four, three win uh, with that two run shot in the seventh inning, the curtain call um, doll back a number of players and Alex core went out of their way. Talk about the energy in the ballpark that night, the support they felt really, I think, for the first time this year uh, became a factor. So multiply that times four coming up in another uh, 10 days or so. And um, it really should be interesting at Fenway with uh, the potential. For house. Yeah. And Sean, you know, you have to get, you have to get New England talking about the Red Sox again. I mean, that's, it's been a while. I mean, since 2018, which was awesome. Everyone loved it. We, you know, we, we get the big ring and everything. 19 was a disaster. 2020 was worse I mean, you're, you're, you're in a period where New England fans are talking less about the Red Sox than they ever have, in my opinion. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, they're, they're not, um, you can remember, I'm sure, Steve, from your playing career and then uh, your post-career how uh, being on the radio at times on sports talk radio, how every Red Sox game got dissected. You know, why did the manager do this? Uh, what would have been different if they had uh, made this move in the eighth inning instead of the one they did. And now in the market, uh, you know, the Patriots rule the airwaves almost regardless of time of year. Uh, you got a lot of people interested in Celtics. People are jumping on the Bruins bandwagon now that they're in the playoffs and 
and uh, and have off to a, a pretty good start in their series with Washington. So it, it's uh, the, the days of the Red Sox kind of ruling the marketplace and being the number one team in town are gone. And they've got to find a way to, you know, for, for, for ticket sales, for support, for just their standing in the city. Uh, that has to change. Yeah, I think it'll it'll change soon. You know, obviously, uh, hockey's in the playoffs. That'll go for another month. Basketball, same situation. That'll go for a while. Once the summer sets in and there's nothing else going on, there's two things that will bring fans back to the Red Sox. Number one, be a good team. Uh, you know, you got to win. And, and that's what Red Sox fans, that's what New England fans, you know, that's what they hang their hat on. They're used to it. They're, they're not going to be satisfied if it's not a winning ball club. And the other one for me, which is a huge factor, is be a likable team. And they haven't been. You know, they have, you know, all due respect to some of the really good players on that team. They haven't been fun. They haven't been a good team to watch. They haven't been an exciting team to watch. They didn't have any personality. And this team has the potential for all of that. When you have guys, you know, like Kike Hernandez and Verdugo, especially both potentially at the top of the lineup, guys that have some flair, some swagger, a little bit of cockiness, some hot dog in them, which is something that I've always felt that this team has absolutely needed and has lacked for a number of years. You know, your big star players, guy like Bogarts, who's, you know, if you had a daughter, you, 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 you would say, go ahead and marry Bogarts. He's that great a person and a great player, but a quiet leader. Uh, same thing with J.D. Martinez, excellent baseball player, but doesn't say two words. So, you know, there's nothing there. You know, you love to cheer for him when he hits a home run, but there's you're not cheering for any personality. Yeah, so and, that, and some of that comes just, you know, it, it, it's the old uh, chicken and egg question, Steve, right? With, uh, with you, We talk about team chemistry. Does that come because you have a good team or is it one of the things that makes you a good team? And I think that that sort of personality appeal falls into the same equation. Uh, when a team is winning, people find things that uh, that they like about a team. When a team is is out of contention, as they've been the last two years, people say, eh, "Why should I bother?" Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've been on teams that haven't been a great baseball team that have had decent chemistry. So it does come down to the guys in the clubhouse getting along. But there's no question that winning helps you get along a lot better, especially if there's going to be, you know, 25 guys in there. You're not going to like all of them, but you'll like them a lot better when you're winning games. Absolutely. Um, we're likely to see that roster change a little bit in the coming days already. Uh, Kike Hernandez will be back for the start of the road trip. Jonathan Arauz optioned back to AAA Worcester. That still takes a little getting used to saying AAA Worcester around here after so many years in Pawtucket. Um, but uh, it's likely, too, that Christian Arroyo rejoins later. And maybe um, Danny Santana, who was signed in the offseason. Uh, Alex Cora really pushed for this signing, thought that Santana could be a, uh, an important part of the club. He sort of is in that same Kike Hernandez, Marwin Gonzalez mold as a guy who can move around, who can play uh, just about anywhere. You wouldn't necessarily want him uh, in center field, but he can play corner outfield spots. He can play all over the infield. And like Gonzalez is a switch hitter. So really helps in terms of matchups and pinch hit situations. Um, 
what do you know about Danny Santana and his 10-year career? Well, I think the key word you used there was Alex Cora. And Alex wanted him on this team. Alex has talked about his progress down there. The foot is better. Uh, he talks about his versatility, which Alex loves. And he's got a bunch of guys on that team that he can mix and match with. Uh, and that's a luxury to be able to think of who you want in your lineup and not being worried about, oh, this guy can only play one position. You know, well, no, he can play five positions. So I can definitely get him in the lineup. It just depends on who else I want to play in different spots. That's a, a great luxury that Alex um, covets and has on this team. And he wants Danny Santana up there. So the instant he's ready to go, uh, he's talked about he's had competitive at-bats. Uh, he thinks he's ready to roll. And if you're a guy like Cordero, you got to be looking over your shoulder a little bit right now because you haven't produced the way they want. And you got a guy breathing down your neck. Yeah. And interestingly, Steve, Cordero has options remaining. So it would not surprise me, uh, although you, you would expect Chavis maybe to be the guy who goes back for Arroyo. Um, but to get Santana on, they'd have to make still one more move. And the fact that Cordero has options uh, that maybe they could get him down to AAA, work on that swing, get him comfortable and confident again, so that when they bring him back, if they bring him back, um, He's a little bit more in control. He's got a, a foundation under him with his swing and a little bit of success to build upon. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're not going well, you got to figure it out. And a lot of times it's tough to figure it out at the major league level. If you're a guy that has options, they can send him down, get him right. Uh, you know, injuries happen. You're always, you're going to use way more than 25, 26 guys on a roster. You know that there's always going to be guys coming up and down. Um, and moving around depending on how well they're playing and the simple fact that they don't just have to look in their everyday roster in order to make some moves they got what Sean like 23 pitchers on that roster <laughs> not it, it seems that way Steve it's only I underscore that word only 14 uh, and, and I think that's something that needs to change uh, soon too so that perhaps you know not that Cordero is being all that valuable at all but maybe they don't have to make a move to bring Santana up. Maybe it can be a pitcher going back because, you know, they're at the point now where they've had five straight starts where their starters are giving them six innings. You know, five had been kind of the goal for a while as they went through April. But now starters are going deep on a regular basis. It's beyond me why this team needs nine relievers, uh, particularly when there are stretches where some of them aren't pitching for four or five days. Well, how valuable a guy is it to be chewing up a roster spot if you're using him once a week? Yeah. And especially we know how the game is played now, especially with your relievers, you know, who you're going to see in the game if you have a chance to win and you know, you're going to, who you're going to see in, in a game where you, you probably aren't going to win. And then there's still some guys that you're not going to see anyway. So what are they doing there? And yeah, I, I mean, a guy like Austin Bryce uh, who was out of options and they would potentially on the risk of losing him on a, on a roster claim, they tried to outright him, but you know, I don't think this season is going to turn on whether or not they have Austin Bryce under control and waiting for them uh, at triple a down the road. He hasn't been very effective, even in pop up situations. And it just stands to reason that they would be, it would be a lot more useful 
to have an extra player on the bench to give you, even when you have guys like Gonzalez and Hernandez and Santana who can play all over the place, and that's great, but at some point it becomes important to have people on the bench so that you know, you're know you down a run in the eighth or ninth inning. Um, you're not turning to Kevin Ploiecki, your backup catcher, and burning him as a pinch hitter. You've got one more option to choose from if you have – you know, if you go back to 13 position players. Right. And it's so interesting the way the game has changed. We talk so much about the way it's changed on the field, launch angles, all the stuff, you know, you can't take a guy out at second base or at home, all that stuff that's changed. But think about this. My last year was 1993 and that was a long time ago, but at the same time, it doesn't seem so long ago when on teams that I played in, in the eighties and nineties, you'd have 11 pitchers, maximum of 12 no way did any team have 14 pitchers. Yep. And so because you had fewer pitchers, you had a lot more everyday players hanging around on the bench, which was so ironic because I played for a guy like John McNamara who never used anybody. He's going <laughs> to write the same nine names in that lineup every day and not pinch hit. And the rest of us sat over there and picked our nose for the most part because you weren't going to get in the game. And so now in the era of using a lot more players off the bench, right. Um, you know, they have fewer of them to do it with. And just a footnote on that, um, and I know it's coming up, Memorial Day is two months into the season. In my rookie year of 1985, I was on the team from opening day, and I made my very first start on Memorial Day wow. of 1985. Yeah, two uh, like 50-something 50, 50 games into the season, more about a third of the way through the year. And that would never happen today. They, yeah. You know, every manager gets every one of his players into a, into a game within the first two or three games of the season, make sure that they're, they're fresh and ready to go. Yep. Very different game. And, and probably for the better, Steve, let's talk about uh, Matt Barnes who had his first blown save on Sunday, uh, giving up that two run homer to Shohei Otani in the ninth inning that allowed the angels to avoid a sweep and the Red Sox to end their homestand on a losing note. Uh, this isn't to criticize Barnes. Blown saves are going to come. Nobody goes an entire year without having one. But he really has turned the corner this year. Nine out of ten saves in those opportunities. And in those first nine converted save chances, he allowed, never mind runs, he allowed two base runners, one hit and one walk in those first nine. What do you see different about Matt Barnes in 2021? He's finally figured out that his stuff is so nasty that he can throw it over the plate and it doesn't get hit that, you know, guys don't square him up. They don't barrel up his pitches. Otani did, but I mean, here you're talking about a guy who's what, you know, at the top of the league in home runs again, uh, so far this season, that guy's a pretty darn good player. Um, he, you know, he's eliminating his walks. He's throwing the ball over the plate. He's got nasty stuff, and he always has, but he didn't throw it for strikes enough. Guys could sit back and sit on one pitch. They didn't really have to worry about that nasty curveball because he wasn't going to throw it for a strike, so they would sit on a breaking ball or I'd sit on his fastball, and if he didn't throw that for a strike, they'd take their walks, and they knew at the end of the game, walks are going to come back to kill you. You only have one inning there, so you have to be a little bit more selective at times, and, and a, a guy like Barnes, you could do that. You can't do it anymore. He's filling up the strike zone with that nasty stuff that he has. And you're a, you, you go up there as a defensive hitter when he's on the mound. Yeah, and I think a big change this year is his ability to throw first, first pitch strikes. 
He's doing that at almost a 75% rate. So, you know, he gets ahead of you all in one, whether it's using the fastball or curve, it just opens up so many different possibilities for him. And as you noted, puts the hitter on the defensive almost from the beginning of the at-bat. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of, he's learned the ability to throw that kind of that get me over curveball, not his spike curveball. Because when you think about it in his past, when he wanted to strike you out with a curveball, it was never a strike. Right. Always in the dirt. Yeah. He was spiking it into the dirt. But, and people say, oh, how do you swing at that pitch? Well, because he's throwing the crap out of it, number one. And, you know, halfway to home plate is where most, hitters have already decided if they're going to swing or not. And at that point, it looks like a darn good pitch to hit. By the time it gets to the hitter, it's buried itself in the dirt. But, you know, he would throw that pitch too many times in non-strike situations where you didn't have to swing at it and he'd get himself in trouble. Now he can just flip up a curveball where he's not trying to spike it. It's a, it's a kind of a surprise pitch to guys now. And they don't, they either can't pull the trigger on it or they don't hit it anyway. And so now he's ahead in the count and now he can go to work. All right, Steve, let's uh, move our gaze from Fenway Park and Jersey Street in Boston to a little bit more of a national look. I wanted to talk about a play that happened over the weekend in San Diego between the Cardinals and Padres and a guy that always seems to sort of be in the crosshairs and uh, finding himself in the middle of controversy is Manny Machado with kind of a combination uh, takeout slide roll block of Tommy Edmond, Cardinal second baseman. And this was not at the bag breaking up the double play. This was Edmond coming in on the infield dirt to field the ball kind of halfway between second and third. And still Machado takes him out with a slide uh, that some people have deemed dirty. Another in a long line of questionable on-field decisions for Machado. We remember the takeout slide of Dustin Pedroia that may have contributed to the end of Pedroia's career. You played a lot of second base in your career. Um, just wondering your thoughts on Machado and and sort of, you know, the new rules where some things that used to be accepted, uh, you know, a guy like Hal McRae would take would, would give you a takeout slide at second base and send you halfway into next week. That doesn't happen anymore, but Machado still plays that way. Yeah, you know, let me preface my comments by first saying that I don't like the way he plays. I think he is a dirty player. I think he's showed that um, time and time again. Uh, and coupled with his, you know, his arrogance and the way he plays the game, tremendous player. We've all known that. He can hit. He plays the crap out of third base. I mean, the guy can still get it done. It seems like he hasn't needed all the extracurriculars that have hung around his career. But I'm going to defend him on this one because you can't take a guy out at second base anymore. But if a guy gets in your line of a base runner, you can still run him over or knock him down to try to prevent, uh, you know, him being able to turn the double play. So in this instance, I'll defend what he did. um, But his reputation precedes him so much that even when you look at a play like that, where if it happened to someone else, they'd say, ah, you know, he was in the baseline. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I think the fact that it was Machado colored everyone's thinking here. Yeah. And 
Um, you know, and I long for the days when you could take guys out at second base or run over a catcher. We all loved that. We signed up for it. You know, we knew who was coming, you know, Dave Parker, you know, he, I knew Dave Parker was coming. He was screaming at me halfway down the line when I was trying to turn a double play and scare the crap out of you. But, you know, now it's not played that way. And, and unfortunately, if you asked every player in the big leagues, they would tell you that they wish it was back the way it was. And lastly, Steve, um, we are or we are about uh, seven weeks into the season, and already Major League Baseball in 2021 has seen four, count them, four no-hitters. Wade Miley, the most recent one, John Means, uh, Joe Musgrove, and Carlos Rodon with the Chicago White Sox. Um, that's more than we had in the last 162-game season of 2019 in its entirety, not even to Memorial Day, that kind of break point. And we've already had four. I am surprised, if for no other reason than this, with everybody being so careful about pitch counts and guys running up pitch counts because of the three true outcomes, right? We have walks and strikeouts so that it's not unusual to see a guy at 50-something pitches in the third or fourth inning. I'm shocked that four guys have been allowed to go the distance and record no hitters. How about you? Yeah, that that's the biggest contributing factor in the in the biggest question mark where you're like, what? They let him go that long. But I guess when you look at um, the potential to throw a no hitter, you as a manager, kind of tough to yank a guy out of a game. And, uh, you know, you want to give him that opportunity. And and, you know, I think the biggest contributing factor, though, to the no hitters and how many there have been is because of the way they play now. You know, strikeouts aren't a problem for people anymore everybody's up there swinging for the trees. So you're more vulnerable to it. You know, the ball doesn't get in play as get put in play as much as it used to. So that cuts down the ability to get hits. So yeah, to see no hitters uh, continue to rise, I think it absolutely will. And when you think about the league hitting 230 to 235, then I guess we shouldn't be surprised at all that we've got four no hitters in counting so far. Yeah, I just think it's, you know, baseball offensively, and I think it will swing back. There's no question it has to. Uh, I just don't know how long it will take. It has become an all or nothing offensive league. Everybody's trying to hit a home run and they, and there's no embarrassment for striking out. And I truly believe that the teams that do a better job of, of playing small ball and the Red Sox have always been one of those teams. 2018 was an excellent example because that's when this stuff kind of got into its full swing of launch angle, you know, swing for home runs, hit the ball in the air. You know, you still had guys like Bogarts who would get on base and would be a 300 hitter on top of hitting his home runs. And there was a, a number of guys in the lineup that could do that. You know, I really believe that, if you had a, an old school national league type ball club right now, where your emphasis was on speed defense and pitching, you'd win the world series. Yeah. I, I think we are going to see a uh, everything, you know, uh, everything uh, old is new again. I, I think we are going to get back to some more small ball, some more stolen bases. It, it, it seems that there's kind of a self-correction that takes place through these different eras we think that once something disappears from the game, it's gone for good, but that's not always the case. Um, and, and there could be sort of a return to that almost 80s style National League ball. 
just around the corner. That's going to wrap up uh, episode three of This Is Our Effing Podcast, a Red Sox show with your co-host, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. We'll be back with you next week. As we noted at the beginning of the episode, please rate the episode, tell your friends about it, let Red Sox fans know it exists. We'd love to have you listen and join and get on the bandwagon with us. We'll see you next Tuesday. Steve, good to talk to you again. We'll talk to you next week. Can't wait. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.